0: Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is not the spotlight miniode you were expecting. If you follow the show on social media, you would have seen my announcement a few months ago that I'd been selected to narrate the audiobook version of Jana Marx’s latest book, The Krugersdorp Cult Killings. I've been working hard on the recording over the last few months and it's currently with the publishers and will be released on Audible in early 2021. Today, thanks to the generous folk over at Lapa Publishing, I'm going to be giving you access to listen to the first chapter of the Krugersdorp cult killings absolutely free. This episode will only be up for a limited time, so I recommend you listen through to the end now before it disappears. Because this is a temporary episode release of True Crime South Africa, I'm not going to be thanking my new Patreons today, as I'd hate for those shout-outs to be lost when I take this episode down, so I'll save those for next week. In March this year, Jana Marx and Lapa Publishers released the Afrikaans version of this book, Afspraak med Muert. Now, if you've listened to some of my previous episodes – You'll know that while I can read off Afrikaans, it's not my preferred book language, as it just takes my brain longer to process what it is that I'm reading. So imagine my excitement when I saw that there was going to be an English version of the book released too. Now, just like I love podcasts, I also love audiobooks. I don't really get much time to sit still for hours at a time when I'm not working, So I get my reading done while I'm doing other things, like chores around the house or driving. It's only been quite recently that South African publishers have gotten on the audiobook bandwagon, and I must say that I'm really excited about that. It's an important platform, and I think it gives our authors much-needed exposure to the international market. In discussing the release of the Afrikaans version of the book on social media, a few listeners mentioned that they'd purchased the audiobook version. When I saw that there was an English version coming out, the gears in my brain started turning. Most of you will know that when I started this podcast, I had absolutely no experience in storytelling in this format. I'd been a hobby writer for many years, and for the last two years, I've been writing professionally but I've never told stories in an audio format. After almost two years of podcasting, though, I can tell you that the bug has bitten, and I started wondering how I could expand that skill into other areas. Audiobook narration seemed a natural progression. Of course, I had no idea how to even begin breaking into this field, so I did what I often do. I tried my luck. And I asked LARPA publishers whether they'd consider letting me narrate the Krugersdorp cult killings. I figured the worst that they could say was no, and then I would try a different route to break into audiobook narration. Well, they didn't say no. They said they would give me the opportunity to test for the project. And after submitting a sample, I was sent a contract to begin recording. Sometimes in life, If you want something, all you have to do is ask. I will admit to being slightly terrified at the prospect of navigating this brand new world of audio storytelling, and to quell those fears, I fall back to my old staple, research. The audiobook narration process works differently across the world, but in this instance, I would be recording the book on my own and producing it afterwards, in the same way I do with my podcasts. Then the recorded and edited files are sent off to the publisher, and they submit to Audible. Audible has extremely high quality standards, so I had to make sure that I met all of their technical requirements on the recording. Thankfully, there are tons of tips on the internet about which settings to use in your audio recording program for the best results, And I've taught myself how to edit and produce with the podcast, so that wasn't too difficult. One of the things that I was concerned about was how I was going to approach the different character voices. There isn't one way to do this, and if you listen to audiobooks, you'll know that every narrator has their own way of approaching this. I've heard some horrendous attempts at character voices, And really, there's nothing more annoying to me in an audiobook than when a narrator tries to put on a completely fake voice for a character. For me, the best attempts I had heard was when I didn't really notice that the narrator was changing their voice for the character, because it flowed really well. So when you listen to the book, you'll notice that instead of putting on a fake voice or accent, I've instead simply changed the tone and inflection of my own voice when each character is speaking to match how they would sound. I was comfortable with doing it that way, and I hope that comes across in the recording. One thing I learned during this process is that audiobook narration is very different from podcasting, and it was interesting to try and adjust back to my podcasting delivery after I'd been recording the book all day. True Crime South Africa is all about giving a voice to the victims, and that is how I approached this project too. Yana Marx has done a phenomenal job of balancing out facts about the case and information about the victims, and I think that they really do stand out in the book. Something that struck me while reading this book is that there were far more victims than we realise in this case. There were the 11 victims that lost their lives, of course. But the span of the impacts of this group's crimes goes so far beyond that it's actually mind-blowing. And that brings me to the review of the book itself. I covered this case very early on in my podcast, and it was also while the trial for three of the offenders was ongoing. A lot of the information had not been released at that point, and although I'd say that probably about 85% of that episode is still accurate, I am definitely going to have to revisit it at some point after having read this book. If you aren't familiar with this case, it involves the murder of at least 11 people, over a period of five years, between 2012 and 2016. The killers were a group of six people that called themselves Electus Perdeus or Chosen by God. The leader of the group, a woman called Cecilia Steyn, directed each of the 11 murders, seemingly from the comforts of her armchair, in her flat in Krugersdorp. What fascinated South Africa about this case is that the members of the group were not down-and-out people with no other options, who could understandably be easily manipulated. These were intelligent people, with everything going for them. There was a schoolteacher, her two teenage children, one of which was only 14 years old when she became involved in her first murder, the other, the woman's son, was a pretty normal child when he got wrapped up in this, and he would end up killing many of the victims with his own hands. There was an actuary, a man that held a high-paying job at an insurance company. His wife would be one of the group's victims. Cecilia herself was the wife of a police officer. What really stood out for me in reading Jana Marx's retelling of the story was the level of manipulation involved here. I was gobsmacked at points at how perfectly Cecilia Stane had woven her story together. Of course, there were also points in the book where I went, how did any intelligent adult actually believe that? And that is the other side of the mystery. How much did these people really believe? And how much did they simply look past? Yana Marx followed the trial of the members of Electus Perdias. She spoke to victims and police investigators, and this book is masterfully written. As a writer myself, I actually don't know where you begin telling a story this complex, but Yana has managed it beautifully. And even if you think you are intimately knowledgeable about this case, you are definitely in for more than a few surprises. Even if I was not involved in the audiobook production of this book, I would highly recommend that you get it, because it is probably one of the best South African true crime books released to date. So without further ado, here is Chapter 1 of the Krugersdorp Cult Killings. Chapter 1. Mastermind Cecilia Stain pleads not guilty. Click. Clack. Click. Clack. The shackles reverberate against the concrete steps leading from the cells. 37-year-old Cecilia Stain and two of her mates shuffle into the dock at the South Gauteng High Court in the Johannesburg CBD. It is Tuesday, the 9th of October, 2018, and the courtroom is packed. Journalists sit poised with their laptops and notebooks. News photographers and videographers scramble for the best angle for filming the three accused. Family and friends of the murder victims and members of the public are all present to witness justice being served. Bastards. Someone in the public gallery says out loud, Burn in hell, another voice adds. Cecilia seems unperturbed by the outbursts. She chats away, cracking jokes with the bald man and young girl next to her, while everyone in court waits for the judge to enter. Cecilia is the mastermind behind 11 of South Africa's most notorious murders, The Appointment Murders, or Krugersdorp Killings, as the media have dubbed this gruesome murder spree. The state argues that Cecilia and her co-accused are members of a bizarre Krugersdorp criminal gang that murdered 11 people in cold blood for money and personal gain. Cecilia's gang had all the elements of a cult – The first murders had spiritual or revenge motives, but those that followed were committed solely for money, for as little as a few hundred rand. The hair of the leader, Cecilia, sticks up in short jet-black spikes. Her scalp is visible beneath. She glances surreptitiously at the photographers, whose long camera lenses are trained on her. A simple silver earring hangs from each ear. Around her neck is a pendant sporting a Celtic symbol, the so-called Trinity Knot, which dates from 500 BC. Christians may recognise it as a symbol of the Holy Trinity. It's chilly in court, even though high summer weather is raging outside. A young woman slips into the public gallery behind the three accused. Kizia MacAlpine, Her husband, Kevin MacAlpine, a broker, was strangled for 1,300 rand in one of the Krugersdorp killings. The murderers had set up a professional appointment with him. He was under the impression that they were seeking financial advice. Kizia now raises their three-year-old son alone. She greets Fadi De Witt, the brother of another victim, Hanley Lateran, an estate agent. Hanley thought that she was going to show the murderers a property when she was murdered in cold blood, and dumped in the bushes along a dirt road, where schoolchildren stumbled upon her corpse. And all for three thousand rand and her cell phone, watch and wedding ring. At the back of the public gallery, sits Nina Scott Dawkins. The gang murdered her father and mother, Peter and Joan Mayer, in their home for 700 rand. Nina has since had no choice but to take on the responsibilities of the family business. The victims also include a lawyer and a pastor, ordinary people who arrived at normal-sounding business appointments not knowing that their appointment was, in fact, with death. At first glance, the members of the gang, even those who have already been sentenced, seem so ordinary, Afrikaans-speaking Krugersdorp residents with respectable careers, such as an English high school teacher and an actuary, and even two young adults, Just recently, the young woman achieved six distinctions in matric and had been selected to study medicine at university. It was the A student's own mother who foiled her plans. Instead, she was forced to commit murder. The barbaric murders sent shockwaves through the country. How was it possible for a band of serial killers to evade authorities for four years? while committing one gruesome murder after another. How could one woman manipulate five apparently educated, accountable people into murdering eleven human beings in cold blood? All rise, the court orderly says, and Judge Elam Jacob Francis enters the courtroom. Advocate Gerrit Roberts, S.C., Chief Prosecutor, Prepares to put the charges to Cecilia and her co-accused. Eleven murders. Racketeering. The orchestration of, no, the mastermind behind a criminal enterprise. Robbery with aggravating circumstances. Fraud. Identity theft. More fraud. 32 counts on the indictment. Although not physically involved in the various attacks, these attacks were initiated, planned and ordered by accused to Cecilia Stain, Advocate Roberts, tells the court. How do you plead? The judge asks Cecilia after every charge is presented to her. Not guilty. She answers 32 times. With each charge, her eyebrows shoot up slightly as if she's surprised at what's being put to her. She looks the judge straight in the eye and answers firmly. She doesn't speak very loudly, but there's a self-confidence about her. Does she really believe in her own innocence, or is this just another of the masterful manipulation techniques she's demonstrated over the years? Someone in the public gallery starts sobbing. Seven months after that day in court, Cecilia's 63-year-old parents, Pitt and Mara Brunt, are brying in front of the garage on the small holding in Ranfonteen. It's the afternoon of Friday the 3rd of May, 2019, ten days before their daughter's trial is set to resume. The small holding near the Highway Café in Ranfontine is enclosed by palisade fencing. Pete waves at the neighbours driving past on the dirt road as he opens the gate to the long driveway for me. Sorry that I had to cancel our meeting earlier today. When an opportunity comes along, we must seize it, you see, he says, somewhat embarrassed. He's dressed comfortably in a golf shirt and sweatpants. Pitt, now retired after working for years as an electrician at Goldfields and other gold mines in Western Area, does odd jobs these days so that he and his wife can make ends meet. Sometimes he shares what he earns with his landlords who provide him with board and lodging on the small holding. Today I made 17,000 rand, of which I can keep off, he says which is why the Brunts can afford to bright a night. These are difficult times. After my daughter was arrested, we lost everything. We used to have a business. It went well. But the Hawks froze our accounts, Pet says. They've been living on this small holding for three years now. We live in a room in the house here. It's actually their house, Mara says, gesturing in the direction of a man talking to a young boy a few metres away. This double garage is our lounge. Go inside and fetch a chair for the girl, she instructs her husband. Mara then settles into her own wire chair and immediately lights a cigarette. White plaster is peeling off the walls in places. The homeowners' children cavort around the large lawn with their two dogs until their parents herd them into the car and they drive off. Pets munches on a lamb chop straight from the bra. The dusky autumn evening turns cool, but that doesn't seem to bother the brunts. Both look much older than the early sixties they find themselves in. Mara's grey hair brushes her shoulders. Their daughter, Cecilia, has inherited her father's nose and eyes. We can't even go shopping. We have to ask people to do some shopping for us. And we can't go to court either. They call us names and spit on us, says Mara. Poppy used to have pets too. Her rabbit's name was Gizmo. And over the years... She must have had nine or ten cats at home. She was particularly fond of a black cat I rescued from the substation at Fentersdorp. I don't remember its name, Pets tells me. Cecilia's late grandfather used to call her Poppy, and the name stuck, he explains. On the 1st of April 2019, Mara saw Cecilia for the first time since her arrest in 2016, it was my birthday, but it was just me there. She didn't want to see her dad. Yeah, Pitts concurs. That's because Poppy is angry with me. In the beginning, she thought it was me and Pets who had them lock her up. Mara explains. According to her dad, Cecilia has been angry with him for years now. In 2011 or 2012... I wanted to have the kids taken away from her in Dres. She's also angry because people have told her I'm accusing her of things or that I believe she's guilty, Pitt says. Cecilia's children are both teenagers now. Dress is a policeman. Mara lights her second cigarette. The couple has been married for 40 years this year. Louisa, Mara's child from a previous marriage, was 4 years old when they married and the couple were in their early 20s when Mara fell pregnant with twins at the time they were living in Harrysmith, and Pitts was working for the then Department of Water Affairs at Stackfontein Dam on the 22nd of December 1980 Mara gave birth to Cecilia in hospital according to Mara Cecilia's twin brother died before birth. We were members of the Dutch Reformed Church in Harrysmith, too. I'm a devoted believer, Pete tells me. Then he explains that he's never been much of a drinker, but confesses that he used to smoke Dacha in his younger days. By the time I turned twenty-four, though, all my greatest sins were a thing of the past he declares proudly. Cecilia wasn't even of school-going age when the Brandt family moved to Twirlung in the Free State for a short while. Here, Pitt worked as an electrician for the municipality. When Louisa had to go to high school, her parents sent her to a school in Stane in the Free State. She attended boarding school there. Poppy was in grade one and cried when her sister left, Pitt recalls. We told her to be patient because she'd be going to boarding school too as soon as she reached grade two. Pitt remembers little Cecilia's long dark blonde hair that hung all the way down to the small of her back. Looking at these scraggly tufts of hair sprouting from her skull these days, one finds that difficult to imagine. She was a healthy child. Apart from struggling a bit with asthma, there were no other problems, Pitt says. Later, Pitt landed a job at the gold mines in Western Area, in the western part of Gauteng. And so, after their daughters spent two years in boarding school in Pietrastain, the Brunts transferred them to schools in Western Area. The family initially settled in Hillshaven Western Area and later moved to an area referred to as Vatapan Small Holdings. Here they became dedicated members of the Apostolic Faith Mission Church and Cecilia attended Sunday school class every Sunday, her father tells me. She was a gifted child and had a lively imagination. She did athletics at school, hurdles and relay, She also loved climbing trees. She always loved to jump off high places, Pitt says, reminiscing about his daredevil daughter's antics. Friends? No, she didn't have any friends, her parents concede. She spent all her time at the ruins of a stone building in the Falt at the Vatapan Plots. There she tried to catch spiders and once even a snake, Mara says. Apparently, Cecilia and her sister got along well. The family didn't go away for holidays, according to his wife. Pitt was married to his work. She wasn't like other little girls, Mara tells me. Don't even think of giving her a doll. Give her plastic guns or pop guns. She's always hated dresses. She's a lesbian, Pitt says. No, she's not, Mara retorts. She had relationships with her girlfriends. My wife doesn't want to believe it, but it's true, Pet says. He remembers Cecilia as a quarrelsome child right from the outset. She wouldn't go looking for trouble, but if you gave her any nonsense, she would defend herself. She's not afraid, he says. He tells me that Cecilia was only eight or nine years old when the boarding master at Pietras Stane phoned him. He called me to tell me that my child had smashed the window of a bottle store. At first I thought he was lying, but that's how she is. Don't dare her. She also hurled stuff at a BMW, breaking its lights. If you dare her to do something, she'll do it. She gets it from me. I'm like that too, Pitt says. People think they can walk all over me because I had polio in one of my legs. But don't dare me to do something and expect to walk all over me. Cecilia was expelled from Western Area High in grade 9. She was 14 years old. According to the police, it was because she was involved in occultism. Her parents believe that her alleged involvement in Satanism is a lie, although they remember that day as if it were only yesterday. Pitt's brother died and we went to the funeral, Mara tells me. C went to stay over at Louisa's in-laws. When we got back, they told us to fetch the house key from the police station because Cecilia had disappeared into the coppies the previous evening. When we got to the police station, they told us our child was involved in Satanism. They searched my house. The police subsequently sent a report to the school and Cecilia was expelled. The fact that Cecilia loved to dress like a goth didn't help her case either. Mara then tried to enrol the expelled 14-year-old at Fentersdorp High but the police report followed Cecilia everywhere she went. Shortly after starting at her new school, the principal called Mara and asked her to fetch her child before they expelled her. Cecilia's school days were over. Cecilia apparently devoted her life to God in 1996, when she and her family were members of the full gospel church in Western Area. She also underwent deliverance in this church, a spiritual practice in which curses are broken and demons driven out. She said to have been baptized afterwards. Could it be their daughter who had thought up such murderous plans? Never, Mara says, the police think that Cecilia is the mastermind, but they have it all wrong. If she says she didn't know anything about it, she didn't. I can tell when my child is lying. But Pitt isn't entirely convinced. I do hope that you enjoyed that. The book will be available for purchase on Audible in early 2021, and I will definitely let you know as soon as it's out. I would like to extend my sincere thanks to LARPA publishers for giving me this amazing opportunity, to Yana Marks for being a voice for these victims, and to you, True Crime South Africa listeners, because without you, I would not have this opportunity. All of your support and encouragement is what gave me the confidence to do this, and I could not be more grateful. I'll be back next Friday with a full episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.